Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, all about the world of medical family therapy, also known as MedFT. And when I think of medical family therapy, I think of two people, and I had to have them on the podcast. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Angela Lamson and Dr. Jennifer Hodgson of East Carolina University. Angela serving as the Associate Dean of Research there, and Jennifer is the current director of the doc program and they both have their phds from iowa state as you listen to the interview uh, they not only have a strong uh, professional collaboration but a strong personal connection and some great stories about how they met and if you don't know about medical family therapy this is the episode for you or if you know about it but didn't get trained in it you want to know how can i expand my scope of practice please listen In 2005, East Carolina University, led by Angela and Jennifer, created the first doctoral program in medical family therapy. At ECU, MedFT students conduct research, teach, and supervise from a relational and systemic perspective through the incorporation of a biopsychosocial-spiritual approach. They train integrated healthcare providers, and they work with medical healthcare teams to assess, diagnose, and treat patients and their families using evidence-based approaches to behavioral health. So without further ado, let's welcome the dynamic duo, Angela Lamson, Jennifer Hodgson, to the AAMFT podcast. This is a very requested topic, medical family therapy, but for people that don't know, in your own terms, how would you define medical family therapy? So medical family therapy is a field. And I think for a while people were really confused about it because some of our pioneering authors were trying to decide where it rested. Was it an approach? Was it a model? Was it an intervention? What is it? And, um, over time we began to find that it had its own set of competencies. It had its own types of interventions. It had some unique skills and training. It required um, thinking about things biologically, psychologically, socially. And so through McDaniel et al.'s last book and our book, we, and um, the work of Dr. Tyndall in helping us to really operationalize a strong definition um, for it, we rested on the fact that this is really a field. Um, so it's a field that looks at health from a biopsychosocial spiritual framework. Um, it can integrate in lots of different theories and models and approaches, 
but really you want to be assessing and considering all the different domains of health. Um, it emphasizes use of collaboration as a key instrument in getting the best outcomes for health. It's very family-centered, family-defined by patient on what that might mean, but their support system and its inclusion because patients leave our offices and go into their communities. It attends to diversity and making sure we're practicing with cultural humility and it honors agency and communion, which agency is an individual's right to make their own health decisions, and communion is everybody's right to not feel alone in their health. So I think mm -hmm. those are real, the real markers of what medical family therapy is as a field. Some, I was going to say, sometimes we have to figure out how do you say all of that in an elevator speech. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I talk about it with my parents, friends, I'll say it's health, loss, trauma, death in the context of family and how that interfaces with different systems like the military system or school systems or mm -hmm. employment systems that we think about all of those facets from health to illness and trauma, how they occur in the context of that family and, and all the dynamics that are around them. I mean, I like both and we're yeah. clinical definition and more right. uh, terms definition the way we describe it to our friends and family or clients okay. I consider you all pioneers in this field uh, starting your doctoral program in Eastern Carolina in 2005 who did you look up to what, what are the mm -hmm. names if I'm a historian of this who are the names that uh, that you look up to um, that you built on I'm so glad you asked so Susan McDaniel um, who is at the University of Rochester, and Bill Doherty, University of Minnesota, and Jerry Hepworth was at University of Connecticut, who's now at Concord Hospital. And she, those three individuals um, saw an opportunity back in the 80s to really integrate in some of our ways of thinking as family therapists into healthcare settings. And they did it pro bono, and they worked extremely hard to build on what it is today. And so I really credit the three of them specifically, but then there are lots of others, Dave Seaburn, Barbara Gawinski, Alan Lorenz, Mac Baird, um, Mac Baird. John Rowland. Yeah. Right, and there's so, from Walsh, I mean, there's so many other people, Pauline Boss, who just really contributed to what it is today in direct and indirect ways um, that we really have to be grateful for their work. We were talking today, too, about how much others have influenced our work that we always seem to bring them into our conversations, like George Engel and being mm -hmm. able to talk about the biopsychosocial model to write Watson and Bell's work on belief and really thinking about the meaning-making of health. And C.J. Peake has this incredible work in the four-world view. Lyman Wynn, Mnuchin. So mm -hmm. there, have been, there have been many. <laughs> Do you consider medical family therapy as a separate discipline, or an integrated discipline within MFT? Uh, that's such a great question. I feel like when I talk with our learners or people that we collaborate with, I say that our heartbeat is still family therapy. I mean, that is what unites all of us and it grounds everything that we see and do. I think that one of the misconceptions is that a lot of people hear medical family therapy and they always think of it as like a specialization. It almost happens with family therapy as well. And I say, oh, it's so contrary to that. I think it's so much bigger because we are systemic thinkers that we are able to see and transform in ways that bridge 
beyond mental health as well. So to me, there, we do acknowledge medical family therapy as a field. We very much see it grounded in family therapy. Mm-hmm. And, and the capacity, I think, is all the way around healthcare. There, there was no Eastern Carolina. I mean, you all developed it, that program before. So could you talk a little bit about, for our listeners, your own pathway to get where you are today as far as education and then mm-hmm. probably real-world training both uh, in research mm-hmm. and in, in clinical practice to, uh, to kind of tr- uh, blaze the trail to where you are now? So um, I'll just talk about when I was a master's student at Northern Illinois University. Um, I chose my program because of the faculty and I was really enamored with the work of Dr. Tony Heath. And about nine months into my experience there, he left to take a position in a family medicine residency program. And I just thought, where are you going? Like, what are you doing in medicine? That's not MFD. (laughs) Right. I was so confused. And then I was mourning the loss of this amazing faculty member. Because he's the reason you went. He was the reason why I went. So I said, can I come and visit you? So I literally went to the hospital where he was working and I toured around and I was smitten. And he was so happy and he was able to use his systemic thinking and his relational skills and all his training in a way that it just the lights went on. I had had some family health events, um, people in my life that had succumbed to different illnesses and diseases. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what I need to do. This is how I can make meaning out of everything I've been through. Um, And so then personally, personally resonated with me. So. I really worked hard to get, you know, some research experience, get into a doctoral program. I had the opportunity to go to University of Minnesota with Bill Doherty. The logical reason, would, uh, decision would have been to go with him, but I chose to go to Iowa State University for personal reasons. I think that was a really good choice because I had to work so hard to build those networks, so much harder than if it would have just been available to me. Um, so from there, I, that's how I reached out to Dave Seaburn and the people at University of Rochester. Uh, I remember when I found out about their summer week-long intensive in medical family therapy, I wanted to go, but I didn't have any money. And I called up Dave Seaburn and I said, do you have any scholarships? And he said, no, unfortunately we don't. And I remember tuition was 400 some dollars, which for me was a lot of money, plus airfare and whatever else. I saved my money the whole year and went the following. And I remember going there thinking, this is home. So I ended up doing my internship there. And during my internship year, I got to know Barbara Gawinski and Dave Seaburn and that group. But Susan McDaniel was so busy. So um, I found out that if I stayed on and did a postdoc, I could work directly with her. And so I did my postdoc in medical family therapy there. And, you know, then I got my first job at Nova at Southeastern because they had developed a little bit of this families and health um, there. And then just kind of expediting through a lot of things. Angela and another colleague, Mel Markowski from East Carolina, called and said, hey, we're thinking of starting this doctoral program. Would you come up? At the time, I, you know, I was single and I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make the move. Is that the first time the two of you met? No, I'll go into that in a second. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> that's a different story. But I, I made, well, that's a funny story, actually. Uh-huh. But I made the decision to then relocate my life and I haven't left. So it's where we started. I remember we started writing, I started writing the doc program, um, sitting on the floor because I had no furniture as a new faculty member, <laughs> on a coffee table, um, on my little little rickety laptop. Literally, literally the ground floor. Literally the, the ground, ground floor. floor. <laughs> um, and we, we that, that 
um, process of writing that with Angela, I think really solidified our professional relationship mm -hmm. because we had to go through so much to get that program approved. But when the university and the UNC system saw what it was going to be, they um, we were not supposed to launch it till three years after we did, but they bumped us up. So the process has just, from where I went to where I am today, um, I think has just been amazing. That's awesome. It is, yeah. It's been a journey. So. And that's why people listen to this podcast. Uh, we talk about the, the story behind yeah. the, the practitioner, the model developer, and, and what is a common factor, and that is the passion uh, yep. that you had that, that led you uh, to where you are now. Uh, Angela, tell me your story. Sure. So Jennifer and I are both first-generation students, and so not even knowing that I was going to go to college <laughs> until I was 17, uh, I was going to be an accountant. That was my original plan. Um, I ended up getting into a class with a woman, and at that time, I think she was the only woman who had a PhD on the campus. And uh, I started a community college. It was a really great psychology class, and she was very, very inspirational. Mm -hmm. and Geographically, so, where are we? We are in Iowa. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh there it is. There it is. Yes. So um, I had the opportunity to, to really meet with her a lot. And I think that she instilled just so much hope that I could do something more. And so I decided to go on to Iowa State and get um, my bachelor's degree in psychology. But I was offered a really cool opportunity there that I don't know had been offered before. It was work study, which we have mm -hmm. at a lot of universities now. Um, but I was in with the Health and Behavior Research Project and really got to work with some fantastic doctoral students and very well-recognized faculty on the health behaviors of college students. And we, we did some really great research. I, um, I thank them a lot because mm -hmm. I don't know that I would have known to love research as much as I did had I not had that experience. I went on and I actually got a master's degree in human development and uh, that gave me a very strong anchoring in theory and research. So my master's is actually not in marriage and family therapy. Um, but during that master's program, I was invited to help a family locally who needed someone to come and sit with a 100-year-old and help her um, just stay entertained in the afternoon. So she and I got to be very good friends. And what I did not realize was that uh, at the same location was her son-in-law, who was a very well-recognized MD and had diagnosed himself with Alzheimer's. He hadn't been able to verbally communicate in over 11 years. And so I began to really watch how their family dynamics played out, as well as how the helping profession mm -hmm. came into interaction with them and became very fascinated and intrigued by gerontology and just the perspective on later life. And so I uh, thought that I wanted to go on and, and work more closely in the area of Alzheimer's as far, part of the PhD program. And my major professor actually had um, a wife who had been diagnosed with early onset. And so I think we connected well. Um, mm. He has been just an incredible cheerleader for, for me and throughout, throughout my career. But I really thanked him then because I know he took a, a risk on somebody who was not quite sure of the, the navigation on where it would go next. But I learned an incredible amount. I had to do quite a lot because all of the clinical hours I had to gain had to happen during my PhD. So um, I was working in an inpatient psychiatric uh, department. I was in in-home family therapy. I was providing outpatient uh, services to families. And so I was, I was very, very busy. 
But I feel like I need to back up because during uh, my master's program, I needed to, in addition to having opportunities of, of gaining my education, was working at Applebee's. With Jennifer Hudson. Wow. So we actually met at Applebee's when she was in the PhD program, Dude, and I said, Oh, that's what I want to do. That's not what Applebee's. I wanted. Not Applebee's. Uh, I mean, there's nothing, nothing wrong with Applebee's, but she wanted to go into the doc program, but I, I must have been talking a lot about it. Um, well, you're a doctor student. That's a <laughs> well, I, I was coming into the program. It was the summer before I had to make money over the summer, and so I, you know, I could work in the in this restaurant and make some good money over the summer so I did and had the privilege of meeting Angela then and our paths crossed and then separated. <laughs> yep. And it wasn't until she called when I was working at Nova Southeastern, I didn't even know she knew where I was, um, and asked me if I would come up and start this doc program with her. So we kind of reconnected that That's way. Right. But yeah, we always credit Applebee's for our I know. Uh, we we teased a little bit about it. You, you all have trained lots of students, and yeah. so have I. And I never, I remember when you start a new program, you look around and <sighs> you never know how that person that you touch base with and form a relationship will kind of cross-set with you later in your mm -hmm. career. But this is a powerful story mm -hmm. that uh, you must have made a, a big impression. Uh, uh, and Jennifer must have made a big impression on you for you to reach out to her. She did. Later. Her office was right around the corner from mine, but it was weird because it's not like we interacted in, in that way. Um, but it was, it was really interesting. In fact, when I was pursuing the the career after getting my PhD, I really was looking at some behavioral health directorship positions. And so I came to the AAMFT showcase and that year was in Dallas, Texas. And I was going through the showcase trying to figure out maybe there's some academic positions that I want to consider because I had been teaching at Iowa State. I really loved it. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking with a, a particular university just about medical family therapy. And all of a sudden, I feel this hand on my elbow. And it's Mel Markowski. And he says, you need to come and talk with us at ECU about what we're, what we're doing. And Mel had really mm -hmm. had this vision that ECU would be able to have a medical family therapy doctoral program. And so they hired me straight out of my PhD. And I came to ECU, did a first year. It was uh, an interesting one because I moved in July to ECU and in September we had Hurricane Floyd, which was a 500 year flood. And um, not knowing a single soul there, I learned really quickly what that community was all about. It was just phenomenal to see how much that, not just the ECU community, but really all of our county came together. And uh, so I knew I was home. And then Mel got a Fulbright and he said, uh, we're gonna hire another faculty member, but then I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to be gone for a year. Mm -hmm. And so um, Jennifer ended up accepting the position. And we really were two brand new faculty trying, trying to create something that had never been done before in the nation. <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, there were fewer than 15 doctoral programs at ECU. And most of them were on the medical side. So we really did have a lot of climbing that we had to do. Uh, I think what was on our side was that we didn't know what we didn't know in some ways. Uh, but I think as young 
professionals, as mm-hmm. women who were professionals, we had to battle a lot mm-hmm. to get through those those days. And uh, so I'm just really proud of what we were able to accomplish then. And you should be. And I think that further bonded your professional mm-hmm. and personal relationship. And I think also you all have literally been writing the book on what it means to be a medical family therapist and what those core competencies are, those skills. Right. So if we're with a lot of young professionals listening to this podcast and they want to know, like, what are those skills? Like, we could do a whole separate podcast on yeah. your search career, which is amazingly impressive, but for, the, for our scope and focus today, what are those competencies and those skills? If I want to become a medical family therapist, what does the work actually look like? Yeah. Well, I think initially some of the work that we that we really established was thanks to Dr. Lisa Tindall's dissertation, because she was really curious about what is the definition of medical family therapy and what do people think that we should know. A lot of the responses that came back initially were very clinically based, and I think that there were some important elements there that we continue to put in every syllabus that we had. I think some of the basics are just how to be able to collaborate with people that speak a, a different language in healthcare and being able to understand that there are different ethical codes in play, how to be able to, to go into a room and have the confidence and confidence to have the communication with patients on a variety of not just mental health diagnoses, but medical diagnoses as well. So a lot of our students are curious about how do you build a collaborative care team? How do you do that? Um, and the great thing is I think a lot of our systems thinking and doing is, is essential in being able to help make that successful. Is there anything more you would say about the the, the competencies? So we, um, when we developed the competencies, we developed them with a group of national people across the nation who are leaders in this. And we did a Delphi study. So just kind of trying to pull out what are the things that people would identify are the critical skills and the critical areas. So one is systems. And the other is biopsychosocial spiritual. The other is collaboration. The fourth is leadership. Fifth is ethics. And sixth is diversity. And then within each of those domains, um, how do you apply those clinically, supervision training, scholarship, and then management, healthcare management policy? And we really want to elevate the workforce in family therapy to be marketable for these jobs. And what we saw that were other disciplines were starting to put together competencies as well. Um, because you can't, you can't just take somebody that you can bill for and put them in a healthcare setting and say go. Um, that's not fair to that individual, and it's certainly not fair to the healthcare system who's expecting somebody to come in and integrate. So we really wanted to be able to take these competencies and educate the workforce on what they could do and then how they can get the training to be able to do it. And so I think that this has been one of our favorite projects of most recent Um, And we get lots of people coming to the trainings, which is really great, really thirsty for how do I do this um, within my community? How do I navigate some of the barriers? How do I acknowledge um, the culture within my community and the ways that they see healing? It's just really been a a really neat privilege to develop these companies and then really help people think through how they implement them in their communities. So, and this has only been since 2018 Mm -hmm. since these came out. Yeah, these are the most recent ones. And so I think being able to see the abilities of, of family therapists and healthcare that we really do need to think beyond our clinical work and being able to think about how we build research-informed practice and how do we think about policy and, and scholarship and, and leadership. And so those this this most recent iteration really involves a lot more realms of what we do. Yeah. 
so another question we get a lot is okay so I'm in my training program and I've never had a class about this but this this speaks to me either for personal experience right. or for some interface with the, the healthcare system or medical system how do I if I'm out of my training program but still young in my career how do I get training in medical family therapy so there are opportunities at the conference that we're trying to continue to encourage um, so there'll at least be some workshops that are earmarked for this that people can get those skill sets. There are different institutes across the country that people could go to and we have a list of them if anybody wants to contact us. We try to keep that up to date mm -hmm. as much as possible um, from degree granting programs to certificates. Some are online, some you have to go and they're residential. Um, so I think those are ways and including you know the literature, just kind of staying up to date on literature so we could provide some resources that way for people. Um, but the biggest thing is to find um, consultants, find people that are doing this, either in your community or in another community, that you can be vulnerable with, that you can say, listen, I went to go work in this clinic. I can't seem to get a meeting with them. They're not returning my calls. I send them information about the patient. They never respond. And really having a place or somebody who can help you troubleshoot some of that. It can be very lonely when you're pioneering something in your community. And for a lot of our young professionals, I don't want them to get discouraged because if we stopped at no, we never would have gotten anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think it's because we were able to attach to other amazing MedFT thinkers that we got our chops, right? So helping other people means providing them with resources and consulting resources. And that's why this new topical interest network is going to be such a valuable resource. Because that's yeah. one of the you're, things we're you're hoping for. Mind. So as we've been talking on, on the podcast, that the new AMFT, and instead of having uh, a mandatory two-tier uh, membership mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. um, ge geography uh, kind of deciding on what you belong to, now you have member choice and member engagement. So you can pick... Uh, an interest uh, that you have and a clinical focus and you know medical family therapy is among the, the most popular of these new interest networks and we're just getting off the ground here with that but you know you are both very involved in that Angela talk about sure. your kind of hope for that and what that would look like if someone is listening to this and that is maybe their first pathway or entree into medical family therapy. Sure. Well, I, I want to first say that the AAMFT was so supportive of us being able to get the family therapists and healthcare settings competencies out into our membership. And so they have been really supportive of us thinking about how this could become a topical interest network. So the topical interest network is actually family therapists and healthcare. And the great thing is, is it really is already becoming this great community, which is what we want it to be. We've got a lot of work to do. And so there's a lot of materials that are posted as part of our website that are going to be a great resource just to answer the question that you just had of how do how do I learn more? So we've got a section that is uh, some really great segments on current research about family therapy and healthcare and some evidence to support that. Being able to think about some clinical support systems. It has internship links. So for students who are looking for where, where can I go and get an internship or a postdoc, there are links that are already active where they can go 
and find that. Um, being able to also see what current positions are out there. Jennifer and I are big advocates because a lot of times when you have behavioral health positions posted out in the world of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, they may or may not necessarily list family therapy. They might not know what an MFT is. They might not even know what an MFT is. And so we really try to say, even if you don't see marriage and family therapy or family therapy written into the descriptor, really make sure you take the time to contact that HR and let them know who you are, which is why that earlier elevator speech is so important. Being able to to make sure that that message gets out. So we're hoping to really provide some innovative webinars and and some posts that will really help individuals, no matter where they're at in their trajectory, to to be a part of this community. This is a beautiful thing about the new AMFT. If you're listening to this and you're uh, enlivened and passionate uh, by what you're hearing, you can literally click and join today. That's uh, right. Which is really cool, and it's not bound by geography. Mm-mm. That's very, very exciting. Um, your, your graduates, after now 14 years in, uh, where are your graduates? Obviously, not everybody can have a research position. Not everybody that graduates from a PhD uh, program will have a career in research. Where are your graduates? What are they doing, and how are they spreading uh, the word which started with you guys? So this has been the most awesome part of creating this doctoral program is watching what they've done with this degree. Um, but about 50 to 60 percent of them are in academic settings, whether it's medical school, residency type settings, or your marriage family therapy, master's doctoral type settings. So they've really, we've had some infiltration of academic settings, which is great, and we would love that. We've also had them um, go on to become leaders in healthcare settings. Uh, We've had some in oncology, you know, cancer treatment settings, um, FQHCs, community healthcare settings, um, psychiatry um, divisions. Um, Some have gone on into agency settings and they've sort of been pioneering integrated care through the specialty mental health care system, which is really important because there's this concept as bi-directional integration. So it's not just having behavioral health providers integrate into medical settings, but how do you get medical settings integrating into mental health settings? So they've been pioneering some of that. We have um, them serving as technical assistants where they go out into their communities who want to develop integrated care and they help them figure out what are the clinical, operational, financial, um, and educational resources that they need to garner to be able to have this in their system. So we have some of them working at high-powered research institutes. We had one recently hired on in a research division of a pharmaceutical company which is really interesting and cool. So we're really excited about seeing how that grows. Um, Am I missing any? Well, I was just going to say that I think that it's pretty fantastic to watch the ways in which they developed clinically. Again, it goes to that point of of not really seeing this as a specialty, but something that's so much greater in, in the capacity that they've been able to touch in all aspects of healthcare. Um, we do have some that have worked as well. Oh, let me let me just say that I think something that our program does well is being able to honor the realms of diversity of healthcare as well. Um, all of the different aspects of social location. And so we have graduates working with the Cherokee Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some that are working with very, very um, uh, underserved populations that are struggling with chron- serious chronic health conditions. So, and policy is probably one of the biggest elements that we've really focused on over the last several years of helping to make that not such a scary um, 
experience, but to understand that if you're talking to somebody who is a chief executive officer, there can be some policy work that's happening very, very locally. Um, mayors that are making a difference in their community by providing more walking trails. Those are things that families can unite around and family therapists can unite around. So I think that it's it's been really great to see just how incredibly diverse the positions have been from the program. Um, my next couple questions pertain to the future of the discipline in the field. Mm -hmm. So right now, if I want to, when I think of geographic word association, uh, when I think of medical family therapy, I think of Eastern Carolina, where you are located, and I think of Rochester. Do you think in the future um, there will be more, both master's level and doctoral level training programs? Oh, it's continuing to grow and flourish, and I would love for people to realize, I mean, there are wonderful people doing this in Colorado, in California, in Washington, in Oregon, in St. Ohio, St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis. And all these people are represented in the Florida. Top Network. Yes, yes. So this is in all the books that we have written, our edited books, reflecting their work all across the country. And so we're really trying to highlight um, how this is, this is really becoming a part of the fabric of many different states and the way they're beginning to utilize family therapists. And in mental health in general isn't just family therapy. I think you're going to watch all the other mental health disciplines are realizing that we can't just have everybody come to us, that we have to go to where the people are. And most people go for their health care in medical settings. And so it's rethinking where we're at and this is happening all over the country. So it's really, it's really very exciting. So I, I think, yes, we've, we've put ourselves on the map being the first accredited doctoral program in medical family therapy, but since then, St. Louis University has developed theirs. Um, and we have graduates stimulating certificate programs, training programs all over the country. And it's just really exciting to see where they're taking it. Um, I mean, you all, as I said, have been trailblazers in so many ways the last decade plus projecting this out into the future, where do you see the future of medical family therapy going? I think we're continuing. We've we've gotten a pretty good stronghold in primary care. I think I'd like to see us become even more noticeable and noted and needed in your secondary tertiary care settings. Um, I love the fact of the research pieces that we're really becoming involved in. And then, as Angela said, policy. So a lot of the challenges that we have with integration is because we have antiquated policies, policies that are not very thoughtful about marginalized populations, policies that are not very thoughtful about family-centered care, billing. You know, we still bill for pathology and bill for the individual. And so having some of our medical family therapists out there really advocating being at the table for policy change is something I'd really like to see us more in the future. I'm glad you said that because we think of, you know, the micro practice of family therapy, but what you're talking about is one of these core competencies right. to do more macro advocacy right. in, the, in the larger system. Right. Uh, which is really a skill that you need to have, especially if you're passionate about this work. Mm -hmm. Where do you see things Yeah, I, I would say that I also hope that in the realm of policy that we're able to do a lot more with regard to the institution, institutionalization that's happened with healthcare to really make it so much more accessible to whole health 
kinds of, of experiences, being able to have individuals go in and have their needs met for their biological, psychological, social, spiritual needs. And I think that there are a lot of challenges that can happen, uh, particularly for a variety of social locations where healthcare is just not as accessible, or maybe it is there for them, but the care is not really wrapping around their most essential needs. So for me, I think being able to have a much more culturally humble healthcare system, I think, I think medical family therapy can be an important part of that. I think family therapy can be an important part of that. Well said, and I'm glad you also mentioned people who think of biopsychosocial, but the spiritual component is very mm-hmm. important, especially you know, when we think of the medical model and yes. uh, being very linear and, mm-hmm. and not including the spiritual. So talk about why that is important and why that is sometimes over, overlooked, mm-hmm. um, but so essential into doing direct clinical practice and working with clients or systems that are going through medical challenges. So there are three nurses that, that I like to start off crediting, Wright, Watson, and Bell, who wrote this book, Beliefs. It was a pivotal book for me, um, and it was back in the mid-90s, but it's still, for me, one of the anchors. And they're such humble women that that really put this out there in print. and um, But we credit them strongly with advancing our thinking that spirituality isn't just about organized religion or what faith you know do you identify with it's how do you make sense of what's happening in your life what are the beliefs and the meaning you have about why you know you've gotten sick or why these events have happened with your mental health and it's working within those constructs the way that people think about um, their health that i think is really unlocked a lot of opportunity for change i this, this patient I worked with is popping into my head, so I think her story might be helpful, is that she is really struggling with managing her diabetes and had just the best medications that you could think of, and we had gotten her in all the you know programs for mental health services, and she really had diabetes health educators, and we just were just amazed at the resources that we were able to get for her, and we still weren't able to get her A1C down. We couldn't figure out what was going on, and the providers were getting frustrated and started to do what sometimes happens, which is, you know, blame the patient. And so I sat down with her one day, and and I had, you know, just asked her, tell me a little bit about, you know, how you cope, which is usually our entry point into finding out about spirituality, and learned about how much she is identifying herself as a caregiver for others. And she happened to disclose her faith to me, and um, and then I, she sat there and just kind of looked at me as we were talking about her health and her faith, and she said, "Oh my goodness!" And I said, "What?" And she said, "I am not, I'm not taking care of my gift." And it was in the context of her faith that she realized by taking care of herself, she was honoring her faith. So that's what unlocked her willingness to prioritize herself. Her motivation for change. And her motivation (laughs) for change. And so in that moment, I thought we can no longer see that as an optional conversation. Sometimes it's the conversation. Mm. And there are people who debate us on that on the, whether or not spirituality should be one of the main four health domains. Um, but over time, I think we have just realized that it, it is one of the major health domains. It, it, even if a person doesn't identify with 
an organized religion. Um, it's however they're making sense out of things. So it's just been important. And I think our research has shown that over time, Absolutely. spirituality keeps having a presence. I, I would say globally, we think about it globally. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there is a religion or belief system that really does dictate how we think about our physical health. It dictates how we think about our relationships. Mm-hmm. It, it, it even dictates how uh, open or welcoming we can talk about psychological health and well-being. So I think when it comes down to spirituality, it is the meaning making that a lot of people consider in how they want to move forward in, in, in thinking about physical health and treatments how open I can talk about my relationship, how often I can open I can talk about my psychological and emotional health or well-being. Uh, and you have two publications, one that is brand new. Uh, tell our listeners uh, about those. The first book we wrote was published in 2014. Um, that's Medical Family Therapy Advanced Applications. And like Angela had said earlier, you know, Susan McDaniel, Jerry Hepworth, and Bill Doherty had written the second uh, edition of their Medical Family Therapy text. And that was very, very instrumental for the learners to get a good idea of what it looks like clinically. What we wanted with the Medical Family Therapy Advanced Applications is now how do you supervise, how do you train, how do you um, fiscally support the work that you're doing, having it make economic sense to these different institutions that are maybe not sure. Um, What is the research that sort of supports, you know, our being at the table? Um, what are the policy changes that might need to happen in order for us to get there? So I think that book really allowed us to take these other areas and really bring them to light for people to be thinking about as they're advancing medical family therapy in these different areas. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, we've been so yeah. excited about the success of the book. Yeah. Um, it really helped us, I think, to recognize that there were ways that we could use a lot of the skill sets that we wrote about in our first book to help really better embrace some of the clinical methods for book two. So that was a a different kind of crafting of being able to talk about primary care and what primary care settings look like, secondary care, tertiary. But then there were also these other realms of medical family therapy for us, um, being able to to know what what does medical family therapy look like on a military installation, for example? What does it look like after a, a trauma? And so being able to share those experiences, we provide kind of this clinical vignette of what an encounter might look like, and then who might my collaborators be if I'm in this kind of realm, being able to share some of the research-informed interventions that coincide with that unit, department, or, or, or context. So it was a really exciting book to write. We did start that book actually off with the story of us, of how Jennifer and Ty and I met. Um, We were very, very grateful to have Mac Baird as an important supporter for that book as well. And I think it, for us, it just resonated so much about the worlds of our family interfacing with our world as family therapists, interfacing with our world as medical family therapists. The good thing about, I think, that book, too, is if you have a learner, and well, and the nice thing about the publisher is you can download by chapter. So if you have a learner who wants to work in a psychiatric setting, they can download that chapter and really get a vocabulary that they can use, a history of the relationship, an application of a vignette. We wanted something that 
would help people sort of say, okay, I want to do this. I want to do this in this environment. Can you just give me what I need to know for here? Right, so, so the second book was published in 2018. That's Clinical Methods in Medical Family Therapy. It's published by Springer. Ty Mendenhall is the first author on that, then Angela Lampson, then myself, and then Matt Baird. Um, it's in a series that Russ Crane had put together. So there's a couple other texts that are also um, in that series. And so it's it's really been a good, um, we've got a lot of good feedback on that book, but it developed out of a course that I teach, Illness and Disability Across the Lifespan. Most of these books, we've been like, we teach these classes, we need a book. So that one um, came from, from my sort of saying, I've got this compendium of things that I'm trying to put together, we really need a book. Mm-hmm. So it's been, it's been a really helpful addition for our training. And the first book was um, Medical Family Therapy Advanced Applications. And so anybody that listens to this podcast, they should be able to get a discount with Springer uh, to be able to purchase these books. And as Jennifer mentioned, you can buy them by the chapter, which is also so fantastic. Because if I'm teaching a research class, I am going to that research chapter in that Mm -hmm. Medical Family Therapy Advanced Applications text. And so um, we're just really proud of them. And we're so grateful with how many people published in these books books from all over the world. So that has just been fantastic. And if you're an author in the book, you get a lifelong discount of 40%, which is really great. So if you ever want to contribute to another book that we write, by all means, <laughs> let um, us know. Let us know because people out there have really good ideas of what's needed. And that's the thing Angela and I think have really been mindful of is the mentors that we valued the most are the ones who want us who wanted us to do it better. They wanted us to take it further. They wanted us to grow it more. And I am so inspired by this other generation that's coming up that are trying to think of ways to improve on the product. So we're really excited about it when they come to us with their ideas and very encouraging. And in no way is this owned by any one person. Um, The whole reason why I got into this, why I've committed so much of my career is because I want a better healthcare system for my children. So I think that's the neat part is watching the next generation help make that happen. And I believe that we will. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could say it any better than that. I'm so happy uh, you all joined me today. I think our listeners can hear both your passion, uh, your personal story, and, and really you all are both humble, so you won't say this, but just say as you've had good mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked to your students, and they feel the same way about you, and you all are foundational in building this discipline and what has already happened and what will come. So I can't wait to check back with you all down the line and see what the the latest advancements are, not only in your program in East Carolina, but in the whole field of medical family therapy. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Eli, back with you, wrapping up another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast with Angela Lamson and Jennifer Hudson. Let's go over some of those great resources they mentioned. First is their latest edited volume from Springer 2018's Clinical Methods in Medical Family Therapy. Editors Mendenhall, Lamson, Hodgson, and Baird. That's the one that they mentioned. You can download or buy the whole book, old school style, or download by chapter if you would like. And some great chapters. Let me just go over a few of them. Medical Family Therapy and Pediatrics. Medical Family Therapy and Internal Medicine, and Intensive Care, and Obstetrics and Gynecology, and Emergency Medicine, Oncology, Psychiatry, Palliative Care, 
in community mental health, in community engagement, just to name a few. That's not even all of them, a jam-packed edited volume. Another thing I'm excited about, the Topical Interest Network, Family Therapist and Healthcare. A lot of you do that. If you're an AMFT member, it's simple. Go to aamft.org under the Engage and Network tab. Find temp Topical Interest Networks, and there you'll see Family Therapist and Healthcare. Now, if your membership is due, you can join, but no fear if it's not, you can join mid-cycle. And there's uh, multiple benefits for joining a group like that. In 2019, there's going to be two webinars, uh, a website that's going to give you a lot of content, and in 2020, new additions are coming, like newsletters, case consultations, mentoring activities, and other outreach events. Hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you, if you're interested in learning more about medical family therapy, will check out some of those resources. Well, here at the podcast, we always love hearing from you. Give us, uh, send us a message at communications at amft.org. Find us on Twitter at the AAMFT. You can get me at Dr. Eli Live. Always love bringing you the podcast. And until next time, my friends, stay systemic.